0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. So what I'd like to say is that word of mouth is the most important thing in business for which nobody has an actual strategy. Mm -hmm. So you've got a marketing strategy, content strategy, social strategy, podcast strategy, PR strategy, whatever. But nobody has a word of mouth strategy. We just take it for granted. We're just laissez faire about it. And and the mistake that we make, all of us, and I think actually more so creators than anybody else, is we assume that competency creates conversation, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's not really. People don't talk about good. They talk about different. And so we started to 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 work on that thesis and and have. Uh, created a process, a system for helping organizations and companies come up with something different that compels conversation. And we took that same system uh, that we use on the consulting side and put it into a book. And that book is Talk Triggers.
0: I am delighted to be here, my friend. Thank you. And it was great having you on my show recently as well. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you are back actually for a second time, uh, not on The Unmistakable Creative, but you were actually a guest back in the days when we were called Blogcast FM. And I was fortunate enough to get a early copy of your new book, uh, which we will talk about in uh, quite a bit of detail. But before we get into that, I want to ask you what I think is a very relevant question given the nature of your work, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: It's funny you say that because I, I was actually in a number of different social groups. So I was I was kind of a jock, but not really. Uh, and I was a student council kid. Uh, and I was also uh, really heavily in the newspaper and a bunch of other clubs and organizations. I kind of come from a family where where you sort of play um, blackout bingo with that kind of thing. Like, like the, the sort of philosophy of my family is join every club they have and then start some clubs on the side. And so I was I I kind of like have a lot of Venn diagram overlap and I kind of still lead my life that way. I sort of, you know, I'm kind of in the social media community, but also the content marketing community and also the customer service community and also the blogging community and the podcasting community and the video community. I, I try to not pigeonhole myself, which is also one of the reasons why my books are all about somewhat different topics. Mm-hmm. So what
0: do you think are the lessons that you took from each one of those high school activities, uh, you know, particularly newspaper that have applied to your life going forward? And what do you mean by kind of a jock?
1: Well, I was, I, I, I was certainly in athletics, but I was sort of one of those guys who kind of tapped out, uh, when, when you had to be actually talented. Right. (laughs) So I was like, I was like really good at the junior varsity level athletics, right? I was on the JV golf team, JV football team, JV basketball team. Uh, But then after that, it started getting a little tougher for me. And frankly, I didn't care that much. I was much more interested in student government and newspaper Uh uh, than I was in in playing football, especially in Arizona. When you got August practices and it's 116, that tends to diminish your enthusiasm for the sport. At least it did mine.
0: Yeah, I've been there. I I grew up in Texas and and did junior high school football and had the exact experience. (laughs) I was like, okay, you know what? Getting the shit beat out Of me in the hot sun, not for yeah, me. Yeah,
1: yeah, no thanks. Uh, you know, on the journalism side, I've always been a writer. You know, e- even in those days, and and now I, I create content in a lot of uh, formats, as as do you, as do many of your listeners, but. You know, when you boil it down, I'm still a writer, right? I'm a writer that does speeches, I'm a writer that does a blog, I'm a writer that does a podcast, I'm a writer that does videos. It all comes back to writing, and that started. I had an incredible, incredible journalism teacher in high school, a dear friend, uh, and it it was it it set me on uh, a life path that that I'm still following.
0: Yeah. I mean, your. Uh, writing and working on a high school newspaper predates most of the internet i'm assuming because i'm guessing we're probably oh, my
1: closest oh age. it does it is it, it certainly does i mean i I started in the i don't know if I ever told you the story yeah, I started in the web in two thousand and three uh, and and uh, I started at this internet company that was started by my buddies from college, and before that, I was the spokesman for a state agency, the Department of Juvenile Corrections. So my job was to give tours of the juvenile prison system, which um, was not a great gig <laughs> in, any, in any respect. Uh, and we were having beers, and they said, hey, we started this internet company, it's getting kind of bigger, and we don't know anything about marketing or communications. And I said, well, that's cool, because when you say the word internet, I don't really know what you mean. Because this is in the AOL CompuServe Prodigy days, where the open, scary internet, 90, 1993, uh, is, uh, is, you know, is, is kind of a weird deal. So so it's 1993, and I'm like, "Look, I'm not going to give one more tour of this damn prison." And so I went to work as the VP Sales and Marketing in an internet company, having never once been on the internet, which makes for an interesting first day. And we were doing it so long ago that domain names were free; you could just register whatever you wanted. So <laughs> my partners and I—this is to- all of this is true. My partners and I sold Budweiser.com to Anheuser-Busch for 50 cases of beer. Wow our oh. whole office was full of beer and we're like we totally scored like we genuinely thought that we got such a good deal because i mean real i mean seriously this is so long ago that nobody wanted a website and nobody saw any need to have one <laughs> Well, I,
0: I want to go back to the high school newspaper. There are two things that struck me about what you said. One was, uh, you know, the teacher having a really big impact. And I, I'd like for you to, to talk about that in a bit more detail. What do you think it was that made that relationship so effective? Uh, you know, if they're younger people who are listening to this, what would you tell them about finding people like that in their lives? And you know, given that you were a writer at a time that predated the Internet, I would imagine there are things uh, about craft and, and commitment and, uh Certain things where you don't have these rapid feedback loops where you get instant attention, that fundamentally changes the way you write and probably has some very valuable lessons. So I, I wonder what those are.
1: Yeah, I you know, I, I haven't really thought of it that way in a long time. That's such a smart point, Serena. This idea that now you get immediate feedback. I did a, a research project with Cision a few months ago, and it was really fascinating how a lot of professional journalists now are talking about this immediate feedback. Like you you publish a story and then you're instantly in the comments, you know, or on Twitter with your with your readers in a way that, you know, is truly unthinkable not that long ago. And so, you know, we would publish a school newspaper every other Thursday, right? We do two full pages and they publish it in the city paper, which is cool. Uh, but it was, you know, so you you would go a while <laughs> without, without feedback. Uh, and the only feedback you'd get is somebody coming up to you at your locker and saying, I like that story. I didn't like that story. So it becomes very anecdotal, uh, your feedback. And so you got to commit to it, right? you got to be like, look, uh, I I don't have any data, but I think this is right. And, and you do tend to lean on your teachers and your advisors. And, and I wrote a lot of editorials and a lot of things like that where you really have to bring a perspective to it and, and a voice and just kind of hope for the best. So I, I can't imagine having grown up as a writer and a content creator in an era of immediate feedback, I don't know how anybody has any self-confidence whatsoever at this point, <laughs> right? I mean, like, how would you ever think you're good now? I don't because think they there's do. always somebody, there's always somebody out there telling you the opposite. It, it would, you know, my the good thing about me is I knew I was good before I, anybody was around to tell me I wasn't, and <laughs> and I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that for the world. And partially that's because of my advisor. Uh, Sherry Daly who was as i mentioned a dear friend and my mom's best friend she passed away recently unfortunately and and you know she really what i took from her is a couple of things obviously craft and and you know what is what is journalism style writing versus essay style writing etc but more than anything else she she saw in me really early as a freshman in high school, I'm 14 years old, somebody who really had a passion for it um, and and gave me as much rope as I could handle. You know, gave me more and more responsibility and authority and responsibility and authority over and over and over um, until I ran out of real estate, right? And then had to start working for the city paper and then the statewide paper and, and you know, even in high school. And, and it was just keep, keep, feeding line to the fish that's running and most people don't do that right they 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 put you in a box and say this is the role we have and if you want to do more than that well i'm sorry and and she didn't do that and uh i am the richer for it for sure well
0: uh I've asked uh, this to quite a few people that I've talked to you recently, particularly because you come from a, a world of media and journalism that predates not only the internet, but predates uh, 2018, in which we have this very just insane sort of media environment uh, that <laughs> yeah. really, in a lot of ways, I think, determines your version of reality. It is it is the filter through which you see the world. And uh, I wonder, having had the experience that you have, having been around media and journalism so much earlier... Uh, one, you know, what is your viewpoint on all of this? And what do you think is the responsibility of people who create content and people who create media?
1: Well, even more so than my background in journalism, my original career was in politics. I was a political campaign consultant. I got people elected. Wow. Okay. Congress to governor. I worked on presidential campaigns, uh, like I have been in the belly of that beast, yeah. um, in, a, in an era where it wasn't nearly as beastly, uh-huh. but it, but it was still pretty crazy even then, you know, in the, in the, in the nineties. Um, and I'm glad I'm not in that industry anymore. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not a great family business. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I wish I could tell you that I was surprised by any of this, but I saw this coming 20 years ago right? And I wrote a blog post 10 years ago that, that blogging is the beginning of the end of civilization. And what I meant by that is that when people can choose their own media sources, when people can narrow cast the information that they take in, it will eventually contribute to the balkanization of thought um, and a, a an us versus them mentality. I, I saw it coming a long time ago, and, and here we are. What, the problem is, everybody can take in whatever information and quote-unquote facts that they choose. Mm -hmm. There is no circumstances by which you are forced to to hear, understand, or empathize with the other side. What saved us as a society for so long was when we had three channels, right? We had Walter Cronkite and the other two dudes, and, and, and you didn't have to agree with them, but everybody was taking in really similar sources of information at the same time. So you had to You had to, on the balance, kind of deal with that and say, what do I think about this? Now, whatever conspiracy theory you have or whatever your belief system is, you can find not only people, but sources of information that ratify that way of thinking, and that becomes dangerous, and we're seeing that play out in real time right now.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you say that. Uh, I was watching Seth Meyers and, you know, I I watched Seth Meyers in The Daily Show, which I think probably is indicative to anybody listening where I I tend to stand politically. But there was a really interesting clip that Seth Meyers showed uh, about it was interviews with President Trump, but they were on Fox News and they were the most pleasant, like, you know, thoughtful, really kind interviews. People were asking him if he was having fun. It was, it was incredible. I, I was just like, this is so different than what I am seeing on a daily basis. And I thought, yes. wow, no wonder there are people who actually, you know, that this is the reality of millions of people. Like, this is the way they perceive the world. And it just made me hyper aware of the fact that, wow, I am seeing the world through a filter. I have a, a really good friend also pretty much stands where I do politically, but he makes a point to go and look at Breitbart News every couple of yeah. days. Uh, mainly because he's like, if we don't, then he said, you're, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice because you are in a filter bubble.
1: That's such, that's such good advice. Um, it's not advice that I particularly follow, but I probably should, right? It's like, it's like, take your medicine, man. It's like, it's like informational vitamins or, or something. Uh, but it's, yeah, he's exactly right. Like and, and that's the problem, right? It doesn't matter what side you're on. The other side isn't wrong there are they aren't bad it's not a value judgment it's it's they are conditioned to believe something and other people are conditioned to believe something else because everything around them tells them that right and and so how of course of course that's how you would react and and uh it's just it's just where we find ourselves
0: yeah yeah no doubt well I think that makes a perfect segue to ask you about one other thing, uh, and and don't worry, we will get into the book. I promise. Yeah, whatever. It's all good. Uh, Let's do this forever. But uh, you have, have been somebody who's been sort of at the forefront of social media. you were at the beginning of it. You invested on you've invested in a lot of social media companies. And you know, when you and I spoke on on your podcast, when you guys asked me what excites me most about social, I told you that I'm excited about the number of people who are talking about the benefits of quitting social media. Yeah. Uh, and I, I kind of wonder. You know, we we're talking about you know the media in general, but what role do you think social media has played both positively and negatively uh in where we're at today and as somebody who's an investor in social media companies uh how do you how do you you know sort of reconcile the the good and the bad that have come from all of this
1: well i think like anything else it, there there is no social media per se isn't inherently anything. It's not inherently good or bad. It's, to some degree, the the biases and the actions of individual companies that make social media software, social networks, and how uh, social media is used by individual people or companies. I don't know that you can make a blanket statement about social media in general, other than to say it certainly brought the whole world closer together, uh, maybe closer together than they would prefer to be. And and I think, you know, you think about what, what, what social's role is in times of of, of crisis or when news has to disseminate quickly or should disseminate quickly, it is remarkable um, as an early warning detection system. And as a, as a tool to focus our collective attention, it is extraordinary and amazing. Uh, also it's, it's particularly good as a customer service channel, or at least it is in some cases, I wrote a whole book about that called hug your haters as always. If you don't, if something is free, the people are the product and and that is the, the situation we find ourselves in in social media right now. Um, nobody's paying a monthly fee to use Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or any of the other social channels, which means that our attention is the capital sold to to pay for those services. And and uh, I think we all know that's the Faustian bargain that we that we have signed off on. But it starts to get a little uncomfortable with the data mining and the personalization and the breaches and 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 those kind of things. And um, that. You know, Google does the same thing, right? I mean, Google, Google is free and our attention is sold uh as a consequence or or as a opportunity cost there. Um and, and so that just is what it is. And everybody can kind of make their own value judgment uh about that. But but I would say what is disheartening about social today, and you see this now in in a lot of surveys and, and usage pattern data, in certain social networks. Um, to some degree Twitter to some degree Facebook the the good is being outweighed a little bit by the constant negativity, and it's always sort of knives out us versus them. And this balkanization, this tribal mentality, certainly in the U.S., uh, it it plays out in social networks even more so than anywhere else. And it just becomes fatiguing, right? You know, most people who I see quitting social media usually are quitting Facebook uh, more so than social media per se. And, And it's because it's just a bummer, right? People yelling at each other all the time isn't kind of what we Got into this for, yeah. uh, and that's increasingly what we find. Which is, I wrote a pl- I wrote an article about this um, a few months ago that the the the, the decline in Facebook usage and the corresponding or subsequent increase in instagram usage is not an accident right instagram you know not not to say there are isn't negativity and fights and you know nonsense on instagram there is but on the whole today as we have this conversation instagram is and is often viewed as a more positive neutral to positive place and so you're starting to see a migration there as a result mm-hmm.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Before we get into the book, uh, we have one more question uh, about your career. Have you had moments in your career uh, as an entrepreneur, as a creator, where things did not look bright, things looked hopeless, things were dark? And if so, uh, what were
1: they and how did you get out of them? No. I mean, I wish I could tell you that I had like this, like this, um, pulled it back from the breach of disaster tale, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, I've been super, super lucky. I uh, have definitely had low points in circumstances where I'm like, oh, that was a stupid idea, or I really screwed that up. Um, but, but I have been incredibly fortunate that across the five companies that I've started, I've um, never really had a circumstance where I was like, man, what are we going to do now? Uh, And I've been really, really lucky. I wish I could say it was some sort of amazing um, skill on my part, but I don't think that's it. I think it's some of it's luck and some of it is I'm really good at picking people. And so I've surrounded myself with extraordinary people every time. Uh, and, and that's, you know, if I, if I, if I had to give away everything else that I can do, the one skill I would keep is being able to judge talent and judge character, because if you have that, everything else will take care of itself, uh, mm-hmm. eventually. But I'll tell you a story about something that, that, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a disastrous low point, but it was one where I was like, man, I, I really, I learned a lesson a real lesson. You may remember this, really. My company and I started this thing, actually, well, this is maybe five years ago now, maybe a little longer. It was called marketingpodcast.com. My observation then, and still somewhat ironically, is that finding new podcasts to listen to is, is still kind of ridiculously difficult. Um, iTunes is a hot mess. Google's not really set up to you know discover a podcast. The podcast apps don't really do that. They're just It's just not easy. there's no Google for podcasts per se. So we built one. We actually funded, serious funding, a whole website with a custom algorithm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which was quite literally Google for marketing podcasts. Cross-referenced by entrepreneurship, by creators, by small business, by social media, blah, 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 blah. Put a bunch of time and money into it, launched it, big success, very happy user base. Here's the problem. I never figured out how we were going to make money. At this, and so I was so enthusiastic about the idea. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with the idea, and I fell in love with the the blue ocean opportunity, and I fell in love with creating this thing. That I never took the time to figure out how it actually fit into our strategy or a business model or or anything. And so we ran it for a while, and it was great. And then I was like, we can't afford to do this anymore, um, and and so we shut it down. And and so I kind of wish we just would have kept it as a passion project, but it just mm-hmm. it was too resource intensive to do that but it really taught me a lesson like even as a creator where you're like my passion is to create yeah okay but that doesn't come free there's either real cost there or there's opportunity cost there and you've got to play it out right so it's not just i made a thing the thing exists now i am victorious like you made a baby, but that baby has to be fed, and its diapers have to be changed. And if you don't think that through before you start the creation, you can end up in a situation where you've now made this amazing thing, which then drags down the rest of your life. It's funny you
0: say that because uh, I was I was writing a piece that that I'll publish in a, f- a few days about saying you know what I wish I'd known about building a career in the arts, and I said you know one of the harsh truths you'll face should you be fortunate enough to be picked by a publisher, or a record producer, or a movie producer is that art and commerce will inevitably intersect. And you will realize that you may see yourself as an artist, but whoever bets on you sees you as a product and an investment and your value is going to be measured based uh, on the return that you produce in that investment. Yeah, and that's yeah. harsh. That's really yes. a harsh truth that you come to see. You, you kind of say, okay, you know what? Publishers, you know, these people are not in the business of making dreams come true. They're in the business <laughs> oh, of selling no. a product. In this case, you happen to be the product just because the thing yes. that they produce is a piece of art that
1: doesn't make it immune to the rules of business. Well, and and to some degree, I would argue that at least, you know, book publishers and music publishers uh, in particular, they're not even they're not even in the business of you. They're in the business of minimizing risk Uh and
0: occasionally hitting gold. Well, it's it's like venture capital is what I've said. You know, Tim Ferriss and Barack Obama make up for the losses they take on the rest of us.
1: That's it. That's exactly right. You know, and and. I don't know what the numbers are now, but it was some kind of crazy, you know, it's 200 albums a year make money and everything else loses money. Mm-hmm. And, and very, very, very few business books make money either. Um, and, and so we all sort of limp along and then every once in a while someone knocks one out of the park and, and that's where everybody gets paid. How do you,
0: as somebody who's written multiple books, uh, navigate that dynamic without losing your mind, knowing that, hey, maybe this thing isn't going to live up to my expectations,
1: the key is to understand why you're writing a book. Yeah. And being really clear with yourself about that. I don't write books to sell books. I hope I sell books. Yeah. But for me a book is a means to an end, it's not an end. I write books to sell speeches. Uh-huh. And and the same way that in the music business today you don't produce albums to sell albums because there's no market for that anymore, you produce albums to tour behind because you're going to sell ticket sales and t-shirts for me, it's very similar. I I am, I am a rock band with one guy in it who works days instead of nights. It's the same business model, right? Where instead of doing an album every three years, I'm doing a book every three years. Um, and, and people say, well, where where do albums come from your life experience? I write books based on questions that my clients ask, and I turn them into a book and that book becomes a new speech. And the speech becomes what I tour behind for the next two or three years. And, and, and that's how it works. Now, Obviously, I hope we sell books and the more books, the better for a number of reasons. Uh, But but, you know, to me, number of books sold isn't really the math that I put against it.
5: Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of books, uh, let's get into the one that you have recently written, which is selling tons of copies. So I don't even know (laughs) what I'm talking about. What prompted your interest in this uh, particular subject?
1: Same thing, right? So so we've got all these clients, and our, our company does social media consulting and content marketing consulting, customer service consulting, et cetera. And all these clients saying, well, Jay, we, um, we feel like we've got a better handle on the mechanics of all this now, but we're not really sure what to say. Like, we keep trying different things, and it never really works. And I was like, geez, if these companies, many of them are the biggest, most iconic brands in the world, don't really understand what story they're telling like nobody understands what the story they're telling. And so I started to do a bunch of research and we started to do some consulting on this topic and spent some time perfecting a process and and realized that what we have missed along the way in this like fervent embrace of social media is we kind of took a nap on really what is the big brother of social media, which is word of mouth. And and the conclusion that I drew, which is not new by any stretch of the imagination, but I think has been forgotten largely, is that the best way to grow any business, whether you're an individual creator or a giant corporation, is for your customers and patrons to grow it for you, right? The best way to get new listeners to this podcast is for listeners to tell their friends you should listen to Unmistakable Creative. Same thing with any business. And, and we all know that to be true intuitively, right? Sure. But we don't do anything about it. So what I'd like to say is that word of mouth is the most important thing in business for which nobody has an actual strategy. Mm-hmm. So you've got a marketing strategy, content strategy, social strategy, podcast strategy, PR strategy, whatever, but nobody has a word-of-mouth strategy. We just take it for granted. We're just laissez-faire about it. And, And the mistake that we make, all of us, and I think actually more so creators than anybody else, is we assume that competency creates conversation, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. it's not really people don't talk about good they talk about different and so we started to, to, to work on that thesis and and have uh, created a process a system for helping organizations and companies come up with something different that compels conversation And we took that same system uh, that we use on the consulting side and put it into a book and that book is talk triggers
0: yeah well so we're going to get into to actually how to build this system it's funny you say that because i think pretty much our entire show has grown through word of mouth from our listeners telling
1: other people of course, of course. And, and what, we would argue, what we would argue is uh, a way to make that happen faster and more reliably is to um, come up with one thing in the satellite ecosystem of the show mm-hmm. um, that you do that, that, that people simply do not expect.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of, of things that people don't expect, uh, let's get into the framework. I think the first thing I cool. want to start with is the what you call the four talk triggers criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you walk us through them and then yeah. uh, talk about how they apply?
1: So the book itself, let me say two things. The book itself um, is, is set up in a four, five, six framework. So the four ingredients of a talk trigger the five types of talk triggers, and the six-step process for how to create talk triggers. And that's important because there's a lot of other books out there about word of mouth and why it's important. And they're good. And we interviewed almost all of those folks for our book. But what we have provided is a real reliable framework mm-hmm. for how to actually do this, right? That's what sets it apart, is that any bit? and I mean any business, any creator can take this book and do it and put it into practice. And, and that's the part that, that makes it really important. Yeah. Uh, let me say first off what a talk trigger is and it's a strategic operational differentiator that compels conversation it's something that you do differently that people notice and talk about so it's not marketing really it's not like a campaign or a contest it's something that you do differently day to day that that produces chatter now not everything not everything fits that condition which is why we have the four requirements and the first one is that it has to be remarkable, right? This is all about giving customers stories to tell about you. And they're only going to tell a story that's interesting. Like nobody ever says, hey, let me tell you about this perfectly adequate experience I just had. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just it's a, it's a real shitty story, right? Nobody yeah. says that, right? Because it doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's just like, well, um, okay. So it has to be worthy of remark. It has to be something that customers don't expect, That's the first thing. Second thing, it has to be repeatable, meaning that every customer has access to it, or every listener in your case. Third thing is it has to be reasonable. You don't want it to be too big. And we fool ourselves sometimes in business. We think, well, if we got to break through, we got to, you know, let's have a contest uh, and put your name in a fishbowl, and one of you is going to win an island. And you're like, wait, what? Like, an island? Mm -hmm. And, And when you make it too big, it doesn't produce conversation. It produces consternation right it's, it becomes untrustworthy and and that lack of trust kills conversation so don't make the mistake of thinking it has to be too big and the fourth one it has to be relevant it needs to make sense in the context of who you are and what you stand for because it makes the story easier to remember and tell that way so it's remarkable reasonable repeatable and relevant
0: okay so there are five types walk
1: us through what those are the one that you see most often is talkable generosity, okay? That's when you do something a little extra, a little something different than customers expect, right? So um, one of the examples from the book is when you go to Doubletree hotels, they always give <laughs> yeah. you a warm chocolate chip cookie, totally. right? Every day. They've been doing it for 30 years.
0: Absolutely. I've been friend checked it do a Doubletree and uh, we were chatting on Facebook and I was like, how'd you like the chocolate chip cookie? He was like, how did you know? I was like, dude, everybody knows that.
1: Yeah, it's the thing, right? And it was amazing though, we did a lot of research for this book. Like all my books, this is not just Jay Says. I don't wow. do that. We, we did four separate research projects uh, for this book. Just the research budget alone for this book was 50 grand. And one of the research projects that we undertook was we actually talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Doubletree customers. And we said, hey, um, have you ever told anybody about the brand? Yes. Turns out 34% of their customers have specifically mentioned the cookie to somebody else in the previous 30 days. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge wave of conversation. Parallel question. When's the last time you saw a Doubletree ad? I don't think I've seen one. Right? I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, the cookie is the ad. Yeah. And their guests are the propellant for, for the brand. Like, there's a saying, uh, you've probably heard this for that, but it's not entirely true, but it's true enough, okay? And the saying goes, advertising is a tax paid by the unremarkable. Mm. And there's some truth to that, you know? And, and that's really where Talk Triggers comes in. Like, if you do something different, your customers will talk about it. If you give them a consistent story to tell, they will tell it. The one we see most often is generosity, because it's the easiest to conceptualize mm-hmm. and integrate into the operations of your business, right? We, we just give them a cookie. Now, I'm not I'm underplaying that a little bit. You got to buy 500 cookie ovens, among other things, but yeah. uh, but but you know that that you're like, okay, I get it. But there's other ways to do talk triggers as well.
0: Uh-huh. So you talked about generosity. Uh... Speed and attitude and usefulness are three other ones. Talk to me about those.
1: Yeah, so um, speed is when you are faster than customers expect – that can create a lot of conversation. Uh, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to own because our expectations around speed continue to ratchet up. So it's a tough one. It's probably the most operationally difficult. But the, there's a, a, a case study in the book from Paragon uh, Honda and Acura in New York City. Uh-huh. So check this out. So, so they're a car dealer. Like all car dealers, they make most of their money really on service, not sales. And being in the car service biz in New York City sucks because getting the cars to and from is a hassle. Traffic's always bad. So what they were going to do is they were going to create four different service centers, one in each corner of Manhattan. Well, that was going to cost them $42 million in real estate. They thought, well, maybe there's a better way. So then they said, they, they kind of worked on a process and said, hey, when do our customers not need their cars? Oh, when they're sleeping. So now what they do is they come to your house after you get home from work. They take your car, they fix it overnight like a bunch of magic elves, and they bring it back in the morning before you leave for work. Wow. Right? Like, if that happened, would you tell somebody that story?
4: <laughs> Hell, yeah, yes.
1: Absolutely. Of course, yes, right? So that is a great example of talkable speed, right? They're just totally changing the game uh, for, for how that works.
0: Which is the polar opposite of the experience I had with Verizon recently, where I was told that I would have to go and trade phones with a business partner. We'd have to call in together and then uh, they would switch trade the IMEI phones. numbers. It was, di- it was ridiculous because the IMEI numbers in our original order didn't match, but I digress. Like that just, you wow. know, it just kind of, it's amazing that a company that big could have, you know, such a disastrous, you would be oh. okay with such providing such a disastrous customer service experience.
1: I, I've I have uh, I feel your pain. I'm having a similar kind of thing this week myself. It's uh, never, never a dull moment. Um, so speed is one. Um, uh, talkable about attitudes when you're just a little bit wacky, a little bit uh, off center. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uber Uber conference is a great example of that, right? Free conference calling service. Yeah. Um, there's millions of them out there, and they're all totally perfunctory and mundane, except these guys have super wacky on hold music that's hilarious, and everybody talks about it, and that's like their talk trigger. That's their thing. And it's just a little weird, right? Um, so that that can work. Not every I will tell you on talkable attitude. Not every brand has the cultural DNA to pull that off. Like it has to be authentic. Again, it has to be relevant, right? Yeah. So if you're super staid, you know, if you're if you're Bank of America, uh, you know, talkable attitude is probably not going to be your thing, right? It just doesn't really fit. Um, so that's one uh, usefulness is when you're you know just you, you're more useful than customers expect. And the last one. Uh, is talkable empathy when, when you're just kinder, warmer, more human than customers expect you to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so you talk about uh, the six steps to creating triggers. So I'm mm-hmm. going to do something really selfish here. I'm going to have you walk me through the six steps, but we're going to use the unmistakable creative as a case study for how to do it. Okay. Usually this takes 90 days. We'll try
1: and do it in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. All right. So walk me through how we would do that. First, let me say the worst way to do this is to brainstorm it. Okay. Um, because what happens is people say, hey, um, uh, let's all get in a conference room and figure out our talk trigger. Well, if it was that easy, you probably already have one. Yeah. Right. So so you really have to do the process. In fact, we're always kind of auditing talk triggers for our own company and always thinking about it. And, and, and even us who invented the process, we still follow the process. So I'll tell you what the process is, but you'll have to then actually do the process. Okay. Um, here's the first step. First step is to map all your customer touch points, okay so your customer journey. what are all the places that somebody interacts uh, with, with you? website, social, on the podcast, email, et cetera. Okay, you map all that out. great. Second step is some anthropology work. What you want to do is interview three groups of customers. First group are new customers. Second group are longtime customers. Third group are lost customers. Five or six interviews of each group is about right. So you're talking about 15 to 18 interviews, ideally. Okay. In each of these conversations, what you are going to ask is customer. Here's the customer journey, right? Website, email. Yes? Yes. Okay. Okay. When you get an email from the unmistakable creative, what do you expect? And then you just shut up mm-hmm. and let them talk. Yep. Because what you're trying to do is create a customer expectations map uh-huh. that lays over your customer journey map. Because when you know what people expect of you, you by definition know what they do not expect of you and the gap between what they expect and what they don't expect that's the gold in the river that's where the talk trigger lives because again people talk about what they don't expect they don't talk about the fact that they hit a switch and a light turned on no one's going to tell that story yeah then what you do is you come up with five or six-ish, doesn't really matter, what we call candidate triggers. These are things that you could do in the operations of your business that meet the four requirements that we talked about earlier and that presumably people don't expect and presumably would create chatter in some way. I'll give you an example from a professional services world. So in in consulting, uh, my business, my core business, it's, of course, uh, common that you give people a proposal, right? Well, if you ask a customer, what do you expect? They'll say, well, I expect that you will create a proposal, you will save it as a PDF document, and you will email it to me, and then perhaps we'll have a conversation about it afterwards. That's the mundane, average, expected way of doing it. Yes? you all agree? Yes. What if instead, when you delivered a proposal, you actually sent your prospective client a sheet cake, and you used one of those services so that the frosting on the sheet cake was made to look like the cover of your proposal. The proposal itself was contained in a laminated sleeve that was underneath the cake, such as that your customer would have to eat an entire cake to access your proposal. Would that be something they don't expect? And would that be something they've talked about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Yeah. Right? So you take these candidate triggers, a handful that you think might work, uh-huh. and then you map them on what we call a viability scale. And the viability scale has, has kind of two axes. One side is, is operational difficulty. So how hard would it be to order a custom cake and get it delivered. The other axis is presumed talkability. You have to kind of take a stab at this. How talkable do you think that idea is versus the other ones? You plot your ideas on that, and then you say, all right, let's take one, the one that is sort of that we like the best, that is kind of in the middle, average talkability, average operational difficulty, and you test it. Very important. You test it. Every nth customer, a particular product, you do it for a month. There's a lot of different ways to test it based on your business. A different segment, only on Thursdays, only for new customers, however you want to do that. You test the talk trigger and then you look for evidence that it's working, right? So are people talking about it in social? Are Are they repeating it back to you? Ideally, and we recommend this for everybody, you follow up with a three-question survey. Three-question survey works like this. Sometimes you would attach it to a net promoter score survey because you're already sending it. Mm -hmm. It goes like this. Um, Dear customer, since you became a customer, have you told anybody about us? Yes or no? If yes, you give them question two. What did you say? Open it in text box. What you're looking for in that open-ended text box is is presence of the talk trigger. Like unaided, did they mention it? Then you give them a third question, which is a pick list of seven attributes, and one of those attributes is the talk trigger. Did you by chance mention any of these things, X, Y, and Z? That's an aided list of, of potential talk triggers, right? So that, then you know, did they talk about it? Did they talk about the talk trigger? And if you remind them of the talk trigger, do they then say, oh, yeah, I did mention that to somebody? Mm-hmm. When you do that kind of work, then you know that there's a there there. And if you have a talkable threshold, we look for 15 to 20% talkability rate in the test environment. If, if you've got that or higher, you've got something that's worth rolling out to everybody. Hmm. That's how it works.
0: Are there cases where people have talk triggers that they're completely unaware of? Because I know for a fact oh, sure. people tell other people about the the unmistakable creative. I've seen it in our yeah, iTunes reviews. And for anybody listening who wants to help us go through this process, please write in uh, and email us <laughs> hello dot com. Uh, but yeah, I can't I can't help but wonder if there are ones that are
1: there that we're not even aware of. I, I just let, me like a to, let me answer this way. I yeah. I I would say. In the classic sense of a talk trigger, I would argue that if something was so outside um, customers' expectation curve mm-hmm. that that two to four of them out of 10 talk about it, yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know that okay. you're that far out of the expectation curve. Um, what, what I will tell you is that people sometimes have something that they do operationally different. uh uh-huh. And they know it's different, but they don't know the talkable impact of it. Okay, you know what I mean. Like they 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 intuitively know. Um, I'll give you an example. A brand new one, not in the book. Uh, there's a the new uh, hotel in Los Angeles, the Intercontinental, mm-hmm. just opened, biggest tallest hotel in California, super fancy pants. It's putting on the Ritz. Uh, in their French steakhouse, when you order, they present you uh, a. A a whole like gilded tray of steak knives. And you can pick your own steak knife based on weight, handle, like I don't, whatever, right? Mm. That's kind of unusual. Now, that's clearly an operational differentiator that they have planned. They have that's part of how they run the restaurant. What they may or may not know is that like 20% of every TripAdvisor review about that restaurant mentions the steak knives particularly. Yeah. So they know it's different. They might not know it's a talk trigger necessarily. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. I
0: mean, so the one thing just comes to mind off the top of, top of my head, and you may, not, may or may not be familiar with this work, is uh, my friend AJ Leon. Uh, he wrote this uh, PDF, you know, an ebook called A Life and Times of Remarkable Misfit, and it's a PDF, and it's free. But then you open it, and it's a work of art. Like, you've never seen a PDF that looks this beautiful. Uh, and I remember, it was one of those things. And that thing got downloaded over 100,000 times. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, we looked at that and we're like, this defies every expectation that somebody would have of a free
1: PDF. That is incredible. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly it, right? And um, what, what I love about this whole premise is, one, we all know that word of mouth works. Mm-hmm. But right now, we do it on accident instead of on purpose. Yeah. And and this is a system for doing it on purpose. And two, I know for a fact because I do this every day now that this will work. Like, I know it will work for you. I know it will work for everybody listening. People ask me a lot, like, well, who does this not work for? And the answer is nobody. Yeah. It works for B2B, B2C, big, small, government. It doesn't matter. It will work if you actually put it into practice and, and uh, stay the course. Well, I am definitely going to make my copywriter and content strategist listen to this conversation. <laughs> Good, fantastic. I'm reading read the book. Yeah, and, I will. You know, I don't know if I told you this, and you may know this, but there's a talk trigger for the book Talk Triggers. Okay. Because it would be a little bit hypocritical to not have that. Sure. So on the book itself, uh, it says on the back, Satisfaction guaranteed. If you bought this book and didn't like it, go to TalkTriggers.com and send the authors a note. And they will buy you any other book of your liking, and we, and we will. So so if you if you buy the book and you don't like it, um, yeah. let us know, and we'll we'll literally buy you what you want. A first edition Bible, we'll track one down somehow. Uh, we will make it right. So there's literally no reason whatsoever to not buy this book uh-huh. because you have quite literally no risk at all. So if you don't like it, we'll take care of it. Right? So there you has go. anybody, anybody can, taken you up on that? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. That's, that's the best sign. I can do.
0: That's yeah, that's the best I can do. All right. Very cool. Uh, well, I want to finish with one final question, which I, I think, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, is is really relevant to to everything that we've been talking about. And this is how we finish all of our interviews: unmistakable creative, unmistakable creative. What do you think it is
1: that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's the, I think it's two things: it's the realization that same is lame, and the courage to do something about it. Amazing. Uh, Well, I can't
0: thank you enough for taking the time to join us and to share uh, your insights and your story with our listeners. This has been phenomenal. It's been useful. It's been filled with practical advice that I'm going to put to work immediately. So uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book and everything that you guys are up to?
1: Uh, Thanks, my friend. I appreciate those kind words. The book is at talktriggers.com. There is a treasure trove of free stuff there. I hope you buy the book because I know it will benefit you. There is no risk, obviously, if you do buy it, but there's a bunch of free stuff on the website. There's infographics, there's research, there's discussion guides, there's PowerPoint presentations. Um, There's all kinds of stuff there um, at talktriggers.com. The book, of course, can be procured in all the ways that books can be procured these days. Your local bookseller, uh, online, Audible, Uh, Kindle, et cetera. My site is convinceandconvert.com. That is our uh, very large resource site. We've got podcasts, we've got blogs, we've got videos, we've got everything uh, marketing and customer service for you at convinceandconvert.com.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?
3: Because Rustolium's new custom spray five-in-one gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five-in-one, only from Rustolium.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.